Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Today, the golf map is taking me to southwest England. I'll find out what myths and legends can tell us about the origins of the map. I'll see how our medieval forebears lived and died. And up on Britain's wild moors, I'll go hunting with falcons and eagles. The golf map was made in the early 1360s when Edward III was on the throne. It represents a breakthrough in cartography, the oldest surviving map to depict Britain accurately, showing towns, rivers marked in green, and nearly 3,000 miles of routes marked in red. But creating an accurate map of Britain was not the sole motivation of the map makers. Contained within it are clues that suggest the golf map was made to legitimize the monarchy and to sanction royal authority over the realm. Today I'll follow the only route into the West Country. My final destination is Dartmouth, where I'll explore one of the most enigmatic inscriptions on the map. But my journey starts in Hampshire. One thing that strikes you immediately when you get on the road is that a lot of places that are today really quite small were once hugely important. This is certainly true of Winchester. At the time of the golf map, it was the gateway to the southwest, straddling the only route from London to Cornwall. It was a center of power and influence, attracting visitors from all over Europe. When they arrived here, they would have heard something astonishing. Winchester was famous for its choir. It still is. But what few visitors realized, then as now, is that Winchester was the birthplace of one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of music. Something called the Winchester Troper a manuscript which records a revolutionary new way of performing the old chants of religious worship. Well, the trope dates from about uh, 1000 AD, so it's just over 1000 years old. We think it was written by a gentleman called Wolfston the Cantor. Uh, we think of that because of the scribblings we know are in his handwriting. 
to understand the significance of it, we ought to look at what was happening before the book started, when we had uh, what we now call plain song, which was very simply one line of music which was sung usually by everybody, all singing at exactly the same time. I'll give you an example of that now. And then the monks decided that they wanted to do something a bit more inventive. One person would carry on singing the plain song and another one would improvise a completely different part to that. And uh, this is where we think there's the very, very beginnings of the polyphonic movement. And what's polyphony then? Is this when you're singing in more than one...? It's more than one part and uh, the parts are very equally spaced um, and they interweave their own melodies. And this is the version as it appears in the troper itself. The difference may sound subtle to our ears, but a thousand years ago, the troper represented a bold innovation. It's funny to think, isn't it, that there was a time before polyphony. I mean, it seems so intuitive to us, so natural, that you would have music in more than one Part. Exactly, and, uh, and it's been fascinating to watch this sort of develop and they're starting from this very simple one line of music that was written in, uh, on one line, physically one line, and the notes just started to go up and down. That's the only way they could tell that you would either sing, sing higher or sing lower. And then gradually another line appeared and so you could get higher and lower. Then this whole thing of another part. Um, now going through to symphony orchestras of 150 players, you know, it's, but it all comes down to things like this Winchester Troper. I'm taking a brief detour from the map's red route. My destination is Glastonbury Abbey. What happened there in the 12th century provides a clue about the real purpose of the golf map.
Glastonbury was one of the most significant abbeys in the country at the time of the Goths map. It owed this prominence, at least in part, to a long-standing and highly successful campaign designed to flatter and legitimize the English crown. The Abbey helped create a legend around a man who, had he lived it all, had died at the dawn of the Middle Ages. His name was King Arthur. The Arthur legend came of age in a country that had really only become a coherent, centralized nation a century or so before. The rulers of the young kingdom needed to legitimize their power. One technique that they used was to invent, or from their point of view, to discover legends and traditions. By stoking the Arthur myth and claiming him as a blood ancestor, the king suddenly had a royal heroic predecessor. The monarchy looked favorably on anyone who unearthed convincing evidence of the royal bloodline. And all of a sudden, Arthurian relics started popping up all over the place. Someone found Arthur's crown. Someone else found Excalibur and his signet ring. They even found the round table. But the most highly prized find and the linchpin of the new cult was Arthur's body. And that was found here at Glastonbury Abbey and under highly suspicious circumstances. This fortuitous discovery deserved a royal funeral. A lavish ceremony was arranged, attended by none other than King Edward I, and Edward himself wrapped Arthur's enormous bones in cloth before they were reinterred right here in what was then the very heart of Glastonbury Abbey. So potent was the legend that nearly 200 years after the discovery of Arthur's body here at Glastonbury, the makers of the Goth map saw fit to include four sites of particularly Arthurian interest. Here's Glastonbury itself, and Tintagel, Arthur's fortress. Pendragon Castle, the home of Arthur's father, is here. And finally, the Wathelin, a small magical lake mentioned in the Arthurian legends. Including these four sites suggests that the makers of the Goth map were seeking to legitimize the monarchy with references to its potent Arthurian heritage. From Glastonbury, I'm heading south and back onto the red route marked on the map. Alongside all of the red routes on the map are Roman numerals indicating distance. And these are probably in old French miles as the English mile hadn't yet been standardized. The Gulf map is the oldest and maybe even the first map of Britain to combine routes with distances. As every route has these numerals, it seems that the cartographer only included routes when he knew the precise distances involved. At the time of the Goff map, this region was famous for its cider production. It still is. 
You might think of cider as the quintessential English drink, but actually, its mass production was first brought here by the Normans, who made it on an almost industrial scale. The golf map's red route takes me to Honiton, where there's a medieval-style cider mill still in operation today. It may be ancient, but it can still produce cider by the barrel load. The, the shape of that granite wheel and the, the actual trough it runs in is actually set so that the apples actually get churned around, a bit like a plough, and as the wheel goes around, the apples fold in behind it. If you let it do its thing, it's actually well designed. Get on! Get on! Get up! Get up! Get up! Even today in England, the French roots of cider are revealed in the jargon used by cider makers. This pulp is called pomace, which comes from pom, the French for apple. Okay. Whoop, whoop. The pomace is taken from the mill to the cider press. Why are they interlayering it with straw? Okay. If you put a layer of straw in every two inches, that'll actually hold it firm so it'll stay solid. And then also the juice will run out through your layers of straw as well. And then what? Applying happens? pressure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the juice will start to run out. Fermented for six months, this one pressing will produce 580 litres of cider. It's just coming off in a torrent, isn't it? Oh, it will do. <laughs> it will do. Wow. But it wasn't to last. In the 1400s, the arrival of hops from the Netherlands allowed British brewers to produce beer. It soon became the national drink and cider was off the menu. In the later Middle Ages, a deadly disease reached epidemic proportions in Britain. In this area alone, many towns were affected. Colliford, Honiton, Tiverton, and Exmouth all appear in documents that chronicle the terrifying spread of leprosy. These medieval skeletons bear the telltale signs of the deadly disease. I think the most evocative and probably the most disturbing are those that affect the face. So the nose actually recedes and disappears. So you see in, in this normal uh, individual that the nose stands quite proud from the, the face, whereas this one is quite receded. He, he would have had probably very little nose left. The disease basically destroys nerve tissue. They lose the sensation of their hands and feet. Their walking is affected. The way they hold things is affected. The facial expressions are affected. They can't smile. Their voice is altered, so they're very hoarse. So it really does change their identity. Leprosy allowed secondary infections to destroy bones. This foot bone shows how one leper suffered. What is a normal, quite sturdy shaft of the bone here is little more than a small projection. Um, having so that been should look like that? That's right, yes, yes. My so God. this is normal, what's in my left hand. 
um, what would be left of the foot at this stage is probably difficult to recognize toes if they existed at all. Just a fleshy and a foot, pulp. Yes, and a foot that was uh, swollen, uh, lacerated, uh, full of weeping sores. There was little that could be done to alleviate their suffering. The medieval hospital is much less about trying to cure an individual uh, physically and more trying to deal with the, the sort of spiritual aspects than a, than a modern hospital will be. They would be given um, in most of these houses some kind of remedial care. That might be little more than just bathing and, and uh, healthful eating um, and, of course, uh, spiritual guidance. The popular idea now is that these leper colonies were like prisons, but they did seem to offer lepers a kind of better place to live. Yeah, I think more often they offered them a better place to die, not only for um, death, but for the long suffering that led up to death, and drawing illusions between that long suffering and what it meant to be a Christian, a Christian in the sort of uh, shape of Christ and his suffering. In today's society, when someone dies in their sleep or something, it's a standard thing to say, oh, well, at least they didn't suffer. But one of the things that always strikes me about medieval death is that you get this very different attitude where, in fact, the, what you might say of one of these lepers is, oh, well, at least they suffered because it means that they can work off some of their earthly sin yes. before they die. Yes, I, I, it's a very different conception of, of life and death and one that we would find, uh, I think, probably quite shocking and unacceptable. Faced with such rudimentary medicine, the sick and afflicted would turn to God in search of treatment. And in this region, one building above all stood proud on the horizon as a place where miracles could happen. at about the time the golf map was made, this west facade of Exeter Cathedral would have been absolutely dazzling. All of these sculptures would have been picked out in incredibly bright colours and it would have been visible for miles around. Despite the loss of colour, Exeter Cathedral looks much the same today as it would have 600 years ago. But what went on inside the cathedral back then would probably startle modern visitors. It would have been a bustling, noisy place. Jugglers, hawkers, people even brought their dogs, and on certain days there was actually a local market. They sold a surprising range of goods in here, everything from cheap wool to small devotional objects, like the wax votives that pilgrims would use in order to channel God's healing power. Until fairly recently, it was thought that none of these wax votives had survived. Fast forward 600 years to 1943, when Exeter was recovering from a visit by Hitler's Luftwaffe. This entire area was covered in debris, and as workmen began to restore the cathedral, they made an astonishing discovery right above this tomb. A hidden hoard of wax votives, small sculptures cast in the shape 
of the body or animal part for which the pilgrim was seeking a miraculous cure. This one is part of a horse's head. Wow, how marvelous. See, which is pretty nice. Oh, he's beautiful. Shall I give him to you? Do you mind if I have a look? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing that they survived. They're so thin, the the That's wax. right, yeah, yeah. They the craftsmanship is lovely. So do you think this is somebody who um, has a sick horse? That's exactly what I think, yes. Well, possibly even a sick horse's head. <laughs> Can I just wear a shot? Yes, and there. where they would have been put was hung on waxed strings above the tomb of Bishop Lacey. Um, Bishop Edmund Lacey was Bishop of Exeter for 35 or so years in the middle of the 15th century and um, came to be venerated locally and could easily have been made a saint, one assumes, uh, but the Reformation intervened, as it were. And yeah. towards the end of his life, he, he became very ill uh, in different ways, but um, notably he had bad legs. And this could account for the apparent preponderance of legs and feet among the fragments of the votives. Um, this is obviously a foot inside a shoe. So whoever would have bought this particular mould would have had, what, gout or <laughs> something wrong with their feet. What's really marvellous to me as an, as an art historian, really, is that you know, very often the kinds of things that I look at are these super high-status works of art, cathedrals, stained glass, manuscripts, this kind of thing. Sure. But what's almost entirely lost to us are, are the ephemeral things, the kind of everyday objects that ordinary people would, would have. So it's just such a fantastic yeah. thing to see something like this. But the undamaged model of a woman was the prized discovery. That's her in all her glory. Wow, you can really see details of her costume, of her buttons on her sleeve. Oh, she's quite an elegant lady, isn't she? She is, and uh, as all the images are, uh, is hollow, so very light and very fragile. Do you know how many uh, other examples survive, or is this, is this basically what we have? I think in, in Britain, this is basically what we have, yes. The Exeter wax votives are a unique legacy from an age where faith was considered the route to health and longevity. I'm heading up onto Dartmoor. In weather as inhospitable as this, it's easy to see why the mapmakers saw fit to depict this desolate place as a large, empty circle. In fact, many of Britain's most dangerous places are sketchily represented, like the Scottish Highlands and Snowdonia in Wales. Despite the dangers, moors and highlands were used for hunting and one form in particular took off in the Middle Ages. Falconry. Under Norman law, hunting with birds was the exclusive preserve of the nobility. Then, at the turn of the 13th century, 
an act was passed allowing any freeman to keep hawks. And by the late Middle Ages, this type of hunting had pervaded almost every layer of medieval society. However, allowing any Tom, Dick or Harold to participate didn't change the fact that medieval society had a fearsomely rigid class structure. The birds themselves each became linked with a particular social class. The less fancy falcons and hawks were suitable for the lower tiers of society. So a kestrel like this was for a knave, a knave being a servant or a man of humble birth. Whereas a male peregrine, a tiersel, was considered suitable for a prince. The largest falcon, the jure, being rather more glamorous, was ideal for a king. However, top of the charts was this, the eagle. A bird like this was deemed fit for an emperor. Birds of prey were considered so special, they were used as peace offerings or as tokens of respect and friendship. The King of Scotland once gave Edward III a single jure falcon as a present. Edward was so thrilled with the gift that he tipped the man who delivered it 40 shillings, today the equivalent of 900 pounds. The hunting style varied depending on the bird being used. The falcons are aerial predators and they'd be used for hunting grouse. It was the sheer dash of the falcons that attracted an ability. On a good day, with the wind behind him, 100 miles an hour shouldn't be a problem for this little fella. Really? When the falconer was ready, he'd send the dogs in, the grouse would flush, and then they'd go for the vertical stoop of the falcon, straight down on the prey. Whereas the falcon is up hunting around. With the eagles, you'll hunt off the fist, you'll flush quarry, the eagle will see them, and it'll go for it from that way. Whereas the falcon is using speed to overwhelm its quarry, eagles will use sheer physical size and strength to overwhelm it. I'm heading south towards Dartmouth and my final destination. But what really interests me lies south of here, a possible clue to why the map was made. In faded, barely legible writing is an intriguing inscription. It reads, Hic Brutus Applicuit Cum Troianus. Here Brutus landed with the Trojans. According to legend, Brutus was a warrior who fled from the city of Troy after its fall and came to England, where he landed at Dartmouth. The legend continues that Brutus was the founder of the Kingdom of Britain, but was the forefather only of the English kings. By including this inscription, the mapmaker is presenting a powerful message. The English kings were the rightful rulers of all Britain. Edward I even used this legend to justify his wars against Scotland in a letter to the Pope, who had demanded that he bring his campaigns against Scotland to an end. The Gough map represents Britain more faithfully than any other map of its time. But it does much more than that. Its numerous references to the king's heritage suggest the cartographers were minded to do more than just chart Britain's geography. 
This isn't just a map of terrain and topography. It's a map of beliefs and symbols as well. The fact that the legends of Brutus and Arthur are given such physical reality on this map hints that it might have been made with the King of England himself in mind. The golf map was not simply made for plotting journeys, but for planning kingdoms. It was a statement of imperial ambition, the long-standing Plantagenet dream of a united island nation. But it also suggests the epic nature of the king's own bloodline, extending way back in time, beyond Christ, and to the dawn of history itself. Next Thursday here on BBC4, Terry Jones uncovers another medieval life. But next tonight, find out who pulls the strings. All About Thunderbirds is next. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.